Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Alan Rupersberg. The Hammer Museum is presenting Alan Rupersberg Intellectual Property 1968 to 2018. The exhibition is a retrospective that reveals Rupersberg's pioneering role in the development of conceptual art and how he has advanced his ideas into painting, collage, and installation in the decades since. It includes extensive presentation of both of Rupersberg's most important and groundbreaking projects. 1969's Al's Cafe, in which Rupersberg created an actual cafe and served customers artist-made meals that included ingredients such as rocks and pine cones, and the 1971 Al's Grand Hotel, a fully functioning hotel named after a 1932 MGM movie with artist-designed rooms. The exhibition was curated by Siri Engberg and debuted at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. It's on view at the Hammer through May 12th. The exhibition catalog was published by the Walker. Amazon offers it for $41. On the second segment, Lucinda Barnes on Hans Hoffman. But first, Alan Rupersberg, after a break. On February 28th at the Getty Center, here's Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell discuss her biography of the late Romare Bearden, a renowned 20th century African-American artist whose work explores universal themes through the celebration of African-American culture. A book signing follows this free talk. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the only venue for the exhibition Vincent Van Gogh, His Life and Art. Portraits, landscapes, and still lifes drawn primarily from the collections of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterlo chronicle Van Gogh's evolution as an artist. Opening March 10th. Visit mfah.org Van Gogh for more. And we're back. Alan Rupersberg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. Uh, let's start before the beginning with, with you and art school and illustration, because I think the last piece we're going to talk about is going to come back to illustration a bit. Illustration runs deep in American art. Think Homer, think Hopper, name two of many. What about illustration interested you, and for how long did you stay interested in it? Well, I think probably the original interest comes from the fact that it's what I saw in magazines, entertaining myself as a kid. And, of course, that was, you know, what was around everywhere was magazines of all sorts. And so not knowing really anything about fine art particularly, I was fascinated by two things, either cartoonists, and uh, I used to clip cartoons out of Post and Collier's, etc., and then also the illustrations. You know, I was fascinated by, you know, this aspect of drawing and then would become, you know, more familiar then with, with the older illustrators from the, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century. And so that was what I assumed art was to be. I mean, I knew, of course, that there was famous paintings, but that didn't really register because I was interested in commercial art. That's what I grew up with. And so then... You know, when I got to art school, after, you know, taking a couple of uh, introductory classes, which you always had to take, and, and drawing was extremely important at Chenard. You really had to know how to draw. And so then, you know, it gradually moved away from the animation or the cartooning idea into illustration, and then, you know, moved on from there. But... It was, you know, the first year or so of Chouinard that, that uh, illustration 
was always there, and I still like it. I mean, I still go back and look at those illustrations. You know, I have a whole collection of of magazines from the period, and uh, I still enjoy looking at them, but maybe for different purposes. So one of the things that remains an interest throughout much of your work is an interest in print culture, whether it's posters or books or whatever. Do you think that comes from your interest in illustration, or is that totally separate? Well, I would say it probably comes from from not only the illustration, but from, you know, a reader culture. You know, my family was a, 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 all the way back, very big readers. And so we were always reading. And uh, the magazines, like I say, were always around. And, uh, the, you know, the printed ephemera is interesting for a number of reasons for, for, you know, that kind of personal historical reason, but also uh, the first works that I really put out in the world as a newly minted graduate were books, but those were put out for, you know, they were photo books, much like Ed Richet's kind of photo books, but they were put out for the reason that it was something cheap and affordable that people could have, and it was in the early days of conceptual work when we were all thinking about uh, those issues about making art objects, etc. And this was something that then I could put in bookstores, I could sell very cheaply, and uh, it was a different way of, of putting ideas out. Art-wise, let's start with two 1968 pieces, Untitled Floor Piece and another untitled work kind of known as The Campfire. And they're both pieces that bring the outside in, and they're the first of, of years, decades worth of your engagement with the American landscape tradition. One way to consider them is as a, a very specific reference to California's particular art history and its impact on America, such as how we get landscape conservation. All that said, I'm not sure landscape is the best word here, but it's close. I mean, they're kind of works that reference the outdoors <laughs> without maybe referencing terra firma. As you got started in the late 60s, what did you think of those two pieces as being about? Well, I know what the campfire is. And the other one that you're talking about is the canvas-covered boxes with yeah. with leaves and rocks and things on yeah. there. Well, there's a there's a whole transition story in there from, from being a painter, coming out of school being a, a sculptor and a painter, uh, because those were the, the only areas that existed at the time. There was, you know, performance art and body art and all the rest of it had yet to be invented. So I was kind of a, a painter-sculptor. So there's a transition there with those canvas-colored boxes, canvas-covered boxes, that are half painting and half sculpture. Obviously, the prime, unprimed canvas, which you can see in some of the works in the show, comes from the paintings that I was doing when I first got out of school, which were on unstretched canvas. And, and then I began to make them more sculptural, and then I began to make those aquariums with the things inside, and that coincides with uh, the idea of giving up being a painter, because I didn't think I really, you know, that's not what I was good at. Or, or there were other people who were better at it than I and knew more about it than I. It's just that that came from being at school. And so when you get out of school, the first thing you really have to do is forget about everything that you did in school. We all know that. And so then, you know, you kind of, when you start over, you go back to who you were before even. So 
Growing up uh, in Ohio and having lots of access to endless woods and streams and fishing and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, I suppose then nature came back into it because it was, you know, just part of my being at the time. And then also, you know, there's, there's hippie culture that comes in there too because that was part of my period, and part of who I was. And so you spend a lot of time outside. And, and then, you know, the idea of bringing those essences that you find in nature inside uh, as against, you know, idea of the white cube, it all kind of evolves that way, if that makes any sense at all. It does, and it's still funny. Huh? And it's still funny, right? I mean, the campfire being inside is still funny. <laughs> well, there's, there's, that's another issue, is the sense of humor. You know, the irony and humor and all of those kind of things. But, yeah, the, the campfire is inside. But it's also sitting on a pink bathroom rug. And, right. You know, it has... It, it also begins to use everything. All the materials that I was gathering around me were one of two things. Either what I brought from being out in nature and also the kind of shopping culture around you. You know, that you, everything that I bought came from stationary stores or or the market or, you know, any kind of normal, any kind of, just normal shopping culture. And so it, was, it combined those, those, those two things, which I thought really were kind of good oppositions there. I mean, the other opposition there is indoors and outdoors. And right. how much of those early pieces were about how California was really trying to live in both, trying to have a, a you know, the California lifestyle that was indoors and outdoors and uh, with all of the paradoxes that went with that and that we are stuck with today. Well, I think it just probably was just built in. Uh, when you arrive in California, if you've waited all your life as a kid to get to California and then you come to L.A. and you begin to take in all of California. So I explored every inch of California, Southern California, from, say, San Luis Obispo to, to Tijuana. So I don't know if I'm thinking, you know, I'm exploring L.A., and that's part of the work. And so, you know, that by extension is from the Angeles Forest or from the sea, to, what, do, what do they used to say, from the mountains to the sea. So it just kind of is built in. I'm not so conscious about it. was about L.A. and about Southern California. You mentioned conceptualism before. We now talk about conceptual art as naturally as we talk about, you know, painting or sculpture. It's just part of what artists think about. It's a term. It's, a, it's just water, right? When did you start thinking of yourself as a conceptualist? Is that something that comes in in the late 60s? Or is that a framework that you got put in and just accepted as time went on? I don't even remember exactly when I even heard that term. And so it was nothing that it was not bandied about like, like it is now. I mean, I don't even remember being called that or even thinking in those terms until it really became codified in the art world. And that probably happened around 1969 when, you know, the... Attitudes Become Form show, Harold Zaman's Harold show, which at the time, the conceptual world, which 
then became known as an international idea, it was a huge umbrella. And there was, if you go and look at the catalog of when attitudes become formed, you see what a large umbrella that was. And then, of course, after X number of years, people go off in their own more, you know, kind of insect, in, uh, you know, uh, idiosyncratic ways. And then you, you know, then you're put in that category as a conceptual artist. But at the beginning, it was just artists doing something different. And, and you know, we had our reactions to what came before us, which was the, the motivation to do something different. And, and the world of conceptual art, as it is, you know, put out there now, bears almost no resemblance to what it was at the beginning. It's one of the strangest things. That, I mean, it, one of the things that I, I think is so weird is what happened to conceptualism. It went from being its own thing, off in the corner, um, away from abex and pop and minimalism in the market, to having been fully absorbed by the market. And the sense of humor is, is gone from it. It's, it's big and leaden, and it's just such a different thing. Well, um, it, it, you know, now is a catch-all for... Yeah. Anybody to do anything that they want. And whether it has any historical perspective on it anymore, I, I, I sincerely doubt. The great uh, document on California conceptualism of the late 1960s and early 1970s is a show that the Orange County Museum of Art and the Berkeley Art Museum did seven or eight years ago called State of Mind. Uh, we'll have a link to the catalog, which is terrific, on, uh, on manpodcast.com. You mentioned when attitudes become form. Uh, you had a piece in that show. It was called Travel Piece. Newspaper, uh, you, you took a bus trip from, I think it was LA to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And um, the piece is the newspaper you picked up at each stop along the way, and a card table, and I think a chair. I understand you didn't fly to burn for the show, but that the catalog, uh, that you remember the catalog being passed around LA like mad. What do you remember getting out of the catalog? Well, you, you uh, saw a lot of work that you didn't know about. That just kind of expanded the ideas that were coming from Europe or were from coming from New York, and of course you began to define your own work according to what your peers were doing, and a kind of a natural process of of you know being a young artist and and finding your way, and then to find kind of people, other artists who were thinking like you that you you had no idea about was what was so fascinating. So anybody who was working in that way realized that this was a very, you know, kind of significant moment here. And that's when it maybe began to become more solidified. That when when this roundup happened here, even though I wasn't there, I could see what went on and it, it just expands your, your knowledge and your horizons of of what everybody else was doing in the way that probably all other international movements have done in the past. Did you see the catalog before you started working on Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel? No. No, no, because first of all, the hotel wasn't done until 71. So that's like two years after. I just assumed that it was the product of gestation. I just for some reason assumed that you'd been playing with it in your head for a while. Oh, no, no, no. So Al's Cafe was done in the fall of 69. Yeah. 
And that, that's when the show came out. So obviously I had been working on the cafe for some time. And that was probably, I had never been to Europe at the time of that show anyway. And uh, so I hadn't planned on going there. I was beginning to meet the other artists that would come through L.A. who, you know, were involved, New Yorkers particularly. But the transition from the early aquariums into the, the dinners that were made for Elle's Cafe, that's an easy transition, you, you know. Scale. Well, <laughs> scale and presentation, we'll put it that way. Yeah, but it was a... I mean, I don't mean this as a slight to the aquariums, but Al's Cafe is orders of magnitude more ambitious. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, the the aquariums were more or less in in conjunction and done at the same time as the early photo books were also, which were documenting, you know, found works that existed in the world. So this this was all going on at the same time, but yes, it's infinitely more ambitious, and it coincided with, I don't know if you know what POP was, but Pacific Ocean Park was one of the great uh, amusement piers in Southern California from the 30s, or maybe even the late 20s. They used to have the, the Avalon Ballroom there where they did those dance contests, you know, yeah. the, you know the dance marathons where... Uh, you could win money by standing on your feet dancing for two days oh, or yeah. whatever, you know. So the history of, of POP comes out of having those ballrooms on the pier in Ocean Park. And then it went into a great amusement pier, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And then in the early 60s, it just kind of closed. So the the the, the remnants, the whole thing was like still there, but they had closed it down. I don't know exactly when they closed it down, but this is probably around 60, 68 or so, 67, 68 into 69. They gave some of the spaces to artists. And so, you know, I moved into what was uh, the old Seahorse Inn restaurant with two of my, you know, artist friends. We took over this old restaurant and lived in there and made the studios in there and had the great parties in there. and had a great time because the park was closed down. And so at night, they only had a couple of guards stationed, you know, throughout the whole pier. And we had the run of the place at night and uh, or even during the day because nobody paid much attention to us. And so here's all this stuff there for the taking, if you could get it out of there. And so I just piled all this stuff in my van and drove it away. <laughs> and uh, there, there's all the furniture and the tables and the lights and, and everything for Al's Cafe. So I don't know exactly the, how I thought of all of this, but... Appropriation? Uh, well, of we a certain sort. We didn't have that word either, so <laughs> it wasn't, there was no appropriation word to use. It was maybe called stealing. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it was all there for the taking because we knew they were going to tear it all down and destroy it all. So luckily for six or eight months or maybe longer, we had we had this great place to be. And I, I just developed the cafe out of, you know, being able to take all this stuff. And then, you know, it's just taking the stuff out of the aquariums and 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 indulging in another one of my favorite activities, which is 
coffee shops and you know, you know the whole coffee shop culture of LA, LA anyway. In particular, yeah. You know, I I loved all of that. You know, and uh, so you know, it's a it's a fascination with uh, with that kind of culture. And then years later, a couple of years later, after the cafe was closed, and people say, "What are you going to do next?" I said, "Well, I don't know." And then I also love hotels, and so I thought, "Okay, well, let's up it up a scale." Quick note on, on coffee shops. Um, I don't know if anyone has ever done a big show of L.A. art that engages coffee shops. But, of course, Ed Ruscha in those years, Norm's on Fire. Uh, there's a lot of L.A. art from those years. And, and, and San Francisco art, for that matter, that engages coffee shops. I, I mean, Wayne Tebow talks about them, too, right? Well, it really, I mean, arriving in L.A. in 1962, I mean, that was the height of, of uh, you know, those endless coffee shops. Where you could sit for hours and nobody would bother you. And, you know, it just, you know, we all know about the gooky architecture and all of that. But, you know, even outside of that, just endless coffee culture. And, and, Wayne, and Tebow grew up in Long Beach, so he was, oh. he was around it. So Al's Cafe, which I, I suspect most listeners know, is, is a project um, by which people could get, air quote, meals produced on site by you, the artist, um, and, and those meals were made to order assemblages with things, you know, made up of, um, you know, dishes such as rock varieties smothered in pine needles or seashells and pinto beans served with a mound of cotton. They're, they're, they're in the show. To be in the exhibition here at the Hammer and to look at them is great, but it's also fun to stand to the side and watch other people looking at them because they'll just start laughing at, at, at a given moment. Do you remember when or why it became okay for art to be funny because abex wasn't and pop art and minimalism weren't and y'all come along and all of a sudden all of a sudden um seashells and pinto beans served with a mound of cotton well i think pop art certainly had an element of humor in it and you know then there's there's many other artists that, that you know one could name that that they use humor in their work. So which ones mattered to you? Well, I liked, uh, you know, the Harry Who, I liked H.C. Uh, Westerman, I liked uh, Peter Saul, all that outrageous kind of, you know, stick-it-in-your-eye kind of work. Whether it would be Gustin when he changed over, or, you know, there, there's quite a... I mean, you, you can go even back to Picasso and find humor and stuff, so it's there. And uh, and I think any good work of art has an element of humor in it anyway. But part of it is the group of us who probably were out here, you know, and, and influenced by L.A. and and uh, Hollywood and everything from Buster Keaton to uh, you know the latest thing on TV or whatever. So the group of artists that, that I was more closely associated with also had the same thing, whether it was Bill Wegman or. Bastian Otter or Bill Levitt or, I mean, the list goes on. You know, Bob Cumming was out here, Robert Cumming was out here. So we all kind of shared in that, you know, kind of ridiculous kind of humor. Whether it looked humorous or not, part of it is, you know, a reaction to, you know, the seriousness of some of the things that uh, were going on in New York. It's a, it's a different mindset, and, and therefore now you have California conceptualism. People recognize it's quite different from oh, yeah. what was being made at the time. Even though we were all friends with, you know, with all the 
artists in New York also, they come from a very different point of view, obviously. I think I just understood another joke in Al's Cafe, and that's the cover of the menu, which features um, two kind of classic mid-century American landscape pictures, uh, photographs. And here's a project that you began thinking about and working about on, on a pier next to the ocean, and there are these scenes of snowy mountains. How did, how did the menu cover come to be? That's what was available at the restaurant supply stores. <laughs> so it was just a, it, it's appropriation and it's... Well, I mean, you know, I had to gather all the plates <laughs> and I had to get the menu covers and I had to, you know, get all of the necessary uh, accoutrements of a, of a classic, you know, mom and pop uh, coffee shop. So if you went up to, you know, uh, Big Bear or wherever you went, there, there were those menus. And so still are. Uh, and they are. probably still are, but you can't go and buy them anymore for nothing at the yeah. restaurant supply store. But so there was this endless photos that were used for menu covers. Uh, the same thing as, as, you know, saving calendar pictures, which I did also for other works that are in the show. Yeah, we'll come yeah. back to some of those. It's, it's that, you know, it's that kind of vista. We mentioned Al's Grand Hotel a few minutes ago, 1971. Um, I think the part of that project people remember least, maybe, is that it was made for a LACMA show, a show called 24 Young Los Angeles Artists. How much of Al's Grand Hotel is is what we would now call, I keep, I keep using, we both keep using that phrase, right? Um, what we would now call institutional critique. How much of it was uh, kind of about the art museum? Well, it goes back, I mean, you know, the, the, the kind of attitudes that are in the hotel are the same attitudes that are in the campfire or or any of the other work. It really wasn't made for that show. That I had already begun working on it. And then they were organizing that show and they said, we would like you to be included in this 24 Young Artists thing. And I said, well, I'm working on this work that I'll, I'll put it in the show. And so that's how that wound up in conjunction with 24 Young Artists. But it worked out very well because it, it operated on the same, in the same way as I did with my first uh, exhibition where there was really nothing in the gallery and you had to come to my location to see the location piece. So it's very much like the cafe. You had to come there. You didn't go to the museum to, to see Alice Cafe. And you weren't going to go to the museum to see Alice Grand Hotel. You went to the museum to see the show, but then you were directed to go to, you know, the house on Sunset Boulevard, which where the hours were listed and so on and so forth. So it, it didn't come out from being, it wasn't made for that show. It was a coincidence that worked very well. Was there an institutional critique element? Was there a thought of the museum even before the museum approached you? Was it at all about that? Well, all the work was about that. I mean, the aquariums are about that. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. You know, the photo books are about that. You know, it's all working outside of those institutions, and and nobody ever heard of the word institutional critique yeah. until uh, about 1990. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, it, it, it's you know, just for chronological point of reference, you know, so. We're talking about 69, 70, 71. 68 is when Edward Shea finishes LA County Museum on Fire. I mean, there is a real spirit of 
I mean, obviously the, the mid to late sixties, but there's a real spirit of poking, poking the old established thing in the eye. Well, Ed is the first person to say that that's a very rare painting of his. He didn't normally do works like that. That's a, it's almost an anomaly in his work. That kind of aggressive idea there. You know, we never we didn't even have any museums here in L.A. I think that was part of the yeah. So then in 19, what is it, 65, 66, when, you know, the LACMA building opened for the first time. That's the first time there was even a museum to, to poke fun at. But the ideas come from art history. And it comes from, you know, the whole trajectory of artists rejecting all of that. And at the same time, you know, one of my colleagues was Michael Asher. You know, and of course, then I knew Daniel Guerin because he would come here and do things. And it's all part and parcel of the same generating ideas that were shown when attitudes become form. It just keeps going from there. And so, and then the next generation comes up with institutional critique. But, you know, how long had Michael been working? We were, we were the same age. Yeah. You know, so we're all doing the same thing. But... You know, there was the anti-illusion show. I mean, it's all it's always kind of anti-art that I felt most comfortable with. It's probably worth noting in case listeners don't know that before LACMA, but I mean, there was the Pasadena Art Museum. Right. But before LACMA opened, art exhibits work regularly at what is now the LA National History Museum. Right. And was then the National History Museum for that reason. I probably should have mentioned that earlier when we were talking about the aquariums because there's a, a through line of context. No, there is, Sarah. Absolutely. I love those museums, those natural history museums. Artists who got started in the in, in the sixties and seventies, whether it's you guys here, Robert Smithson in New York, natural history museums and their modes of display were crucial. Yeah, they were. I mean, you know, you can look at my photo books and you can see yeah. images from natural history museums and the ideas of of creating these environments and and, and, and uh, playing with nature that way. And of course, you're putting people in environments. I mean, and it's a I, direct line, or a pretty direct line. That that comes a lot from Alan Capro, and, uh -huh. and from you know his ideas of artist artist life, and so I, the influences come more from there as much as anywhere else. From knowing him, talking with him, or from knowing him, and from doing you know, from him and Rauschenberg and other people that you know, it's all it's all connected. I mean, it's very hard to articulate you know, how those strands come together, but they do. Alan Caffrell and Rauschenberg both were at Elle's Cafe. They came. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it fits very much in line with with uh, that whole idea of, of art and life. And th those are the motivating factors there. So speaking of dissolving that line, segue, uh, let's zip forward to 1974 and your picture of Dorian Gray, by which you wrote out the Oscar Wilde novel on... I think 20 canvases? 20. 20. And then they um, are installed on a gallery, leaning against the wall, for example, several on top of each other, so you, you can see some of the text, not all of the text. We've talked about appropriation a couple times, but this is, for obvious reasons, probably the most direct appropriationist thing you've done to that point. Why did... Try not to use the word copying, but I guess copying. Copying is a perfectly good word to use. Copying a text and turning it ninety or copying a text and turning the idea ninety degrees. Why was that interesting? And and why did what, yeah? Why did you, how did you come to it? Well, I did a work before that where I 
what I call a translating, where I translated Thoreau's Walden. It's also in the show, yeah. Which is also in the show. If you take those two works, if you take Walden and you take the picture of Dorian Gray, there's, there's nothing arbitrary there about the translating a book. I mean, if you, if you know what the picture of Dorian Gray is about, you begin to understand what the work maybe is about. So you have to know what that is to, to fully get into it. And, and there, there's a great movie out there which influenced me maybe to, to go to the book in the first place. You know, the, the movie with George Sanders, and, and it's, a, it's a fantastic version of the picture of Dorian Gray. So anyway, you know, maybe, maybe the movie turned me on to the book. I don't know. I don't mm. remember. But anyway, it's, it, it, knowing what the book is about, about, you know, an artist and the idea of youth and, and aesthetics and uh, this painting that is related to, to the sitter but changes and doesn't change. And, you know, it's a, it's a book about being an artist and, and, and painting, what paintings are and or what they can be. And so it's, it's not a choice of, okay, I'm just going to translate and copy this book. It's about making the book, turning the book inside out and making it into, a, into uh, an object. And the fact that it turns out to be 20 canvases, I didn't start with the idea of 20 canvases. It, that's how many yeah, canvases it took yeah. to write it out. And it's also, you know, a beginning of an interest in learning how to write, and reading and writing and looking and drawing and, and the differences between those things. And, and a little joke about the fabrication required for minimalism, perhaps, that here you're doing this handmade thing at length and intensively. And, you know, minimalism, which is at that point around a decade old, takes the hand out of it. I mean, it has all these layers. <laughs> They're just really great and funny. <laughs> it has many layers. Yes, <laughs> I would hope so. So, I, 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 as we've been discussing, I understand why, why Portrait of Dorian Gray was a selection. You notice there's no works after that that do that. Right. There's only one work for each idea. Which is why I wanted to ask about Walden. Was that a, 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 a wink and a nod at the American landscape tradition, or were you interested in Walden for another for other reasons? Well, again, probably it has something to do with coming from you know an environment where I spent uh, lots of time by myself out in the woods exploring, and so uh, uh, then uh, I, I read Walden sometime when I was uh, you know in high school or whenever. Always was attracted to that idea of being out in the woods, and, and then the book is a whole kind of discussion about that, about solitude, etc., and nature. So I thought, and it, it's it's kind of a, you know, when I sat down to to turn that book back into a manuscript, it's me sitting there all summer long, every day, having this discussion with Thoreau. And so it's a way to, again, to bring the inside of that book back into, you know, real time and, and, and a real discussion. Yeah, I, I, I love those two pieces in this show. That's a, really, that's a really fun moment for me. Speaking of landscape, it's back in your work in 1985, um, at least. Well, maybe this is a work that's less about landscape than it is about the cliche of landscape. I'm thinking of cover art, space adventures, and then two roughly contemporary pieces, Hero and a Red Cape. 
and out of what, which are wooden sculptures, kind of tree liny looking things with words on them. And it strikes me that your point of view on nature and landscape in 85 is pretty enormously different from where it was in the 60s and 70s. Were you, were you reflecting a, a different irony or were you becoming, this is going to sound like a negative thing, I don't mean it that way, an exhaustion with America's interest in landscape? Well, it's probably more personal than that, in that, you know, on the most obvious level, all of those titles, like Hero with a Red Cape and etc., that, that I had sandblasted into those logs, I mean, that's really pulp fiction. I mean, you know, you can't get any more. With, with the stuff that pulpits make from. Exactly. You know, and so I... You know, I loved those magazines, you know, I loved Pulp Fiction way before the movie, you know, identified that. <laughs> uh, but the whole history of, of Pulp Magazines was fascinating, also from the, being an, wanting to be an illustrator, but then also, you know, the kind of stories that were within and, and the connection to comic books and all of that other kind of pulp culture, that's where the logs come from. Uh, and also, it's a way to to use words and to put them into a sculptural context. It's not minimalism for sure. And and the cover art series was there. Each one is a is a proposed cover for a, a pulp book or a pulp magazine. So in a way, I'm I'm simply being a graphic designer working for, you know, an advertising agency, you know, designing covers. And when I first showed those works, the title of the show was Commercial Art. And so it says Cover Art for, and then it gives the title of the book. And all of that comes out of the images that, that are in those old calendar pictures, which are really kind of ridiculous. Right down to the, co the, the, the color in which they're reproduced, which is, you know, 20 degrees off of what seems possible. It's not real. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and you can see in a lot of the, of the uh, ones where they're enacting little scenes, that some people really thought they were getting away with stuff. Because <laughs> if you look at them in a certain way, you can see that somebody was sticking, you know, things in there that would not pass the census. <laughs> but managed to pass the census. <laughs> so it's all in there. It's in those, they're like cartoons. And so, you know, I found a, a warehouse where I could be given, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes of calendar pictures that were going to be thrown out. And so out of that, you know, you, you see what's in those pictures. And so it, it's a text on those pictures, whether it's the landscape itself or you know, the enactments of, of Americana. Similarly, in 1989, you make How to Remember a Better Tomorrow, which is an installation which includes a house, a classic American suburban house, and a plexi cube. I guess the piece is dated 89 to 94. Um, you mentioned William Levitt earlier, and, you know, he spends a lot of those years, the 70s and 80s, looking at suburbanization and also making lots of jokes about it in what, to me, is still kind of some of the most underrated work of the period. I think you mentioned earlier that you two were friends and were looking at each other's work. Is there a lot of him and his work in that piece? No, not particularly, mm -hmm. other than, you know, also a great fan of Bill's work, and, you know, we're still friends to this day. But that comes from 
from my use of the old industrial films, basically, because, you know, there's a um, film that goes with it. It comes from, you know, another form of past culture. And the house is an exact replica of the house I grew up in and uh, was done from memory by my mom's memory about the floor plans and the size and everything. And uh, But the landscape that it sits in is an idealized landscape. It's not exactly where the house was. And although it was, you know, wooded environment, uh, or kind of great open, you know, natural environment. So it's about, you know, it's, it's a much more personal thing in one way and in, in that I have, you know, an architectural model maker, you know, make the, make the house and uh, make the landscape. And then the film that goes with it is, is excerpts from these old industrial films that told how great America was. And it's a form of propaganda that we all had to watch when we were in high school. So it, it kind of combines those real personal ideas about where I grew up with what, you know, was being projected as what, you know, was uh, the right way to be. I mean, if you go back and look at those industrial films, it's, it's, you know, it's how to do this and how to do that and how to be a good person and how to be a good citizen. And so again, it's, it's poking fun at all of that or, or, you know, making it, bringing out how ridiculous it all is. I remember films like that even from my driver's ed classes sure. in suburban California. Same stuff. Yeah, yeah. And probably were made at the same time, given how old my, my driver's ed films were. Oh, no, they, they, you know, they, <laughs> they, 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 it started at, you know, they started making, excuse me, they started making those uh, at the beginning of sound, at the sound era mm. in, in the early 30s. And then they existed until the advent of VHS, until tape came into being. So there, there's a very distinct history there of, of those things. I'm sure some of my noticing of all of your addresses of landscape is because I'm a landscape nerd. But in 1997, in your project for Munster, titled The Best of All Possible Worlds, it kind of makes uh, the connection between landscape and travel something that has um, certainly a rich history in the United States, probably other places too. First, why a travel agency? Why, why did you choose that as your point of, of address? Well, uh, you know, these kind of exhibitions that were started in the one or two in the 70s, and then they, you know, kind of culminated in the 90s, these site-specific, you know, group shows. Yeah, yeah. Germany loved them. It still does. Yeah, it still does. <laughs> So, and Holland loved them. I yeah. did Sunspeak 93. But the first thing that you do is you, you go there and see what it is. And so after a few trips to Munster, you begin to try and see what, what, what the culture is there. You know, what, what, where, what can I work with? And so one of the first things that you notice is that Travel agencies existed like coffee shops in L.A. That the Germans love mm -hmm. to travel, and Munster. It's a, it's a, it's a history of Munster also, in the fact that uh, you know it was destroyed during the war, and so you know you take all of these pieces and begin to formulate some kind of idea, and then at the same time 
the curator Casper Koenig came to my studio in New York, saw that I had a copy of uh, of Candide lying around, and Casper said, "Well, you know that uh, that Candide, the, the story, the Candide story starts in Westphalia, which is where Munster is in the in the portion of Germany that's called Westphalia, and if you know that the VW wagons, there's a there's a, a brand of the yeah. DW wagons called yeah. Westphalia. Yeah. So travel and all of that is a big part of, of of what you discover when you're there, and you discover the history of the war, because the war is is what that generation is defined by, and also the fact that Munster is a complete recreation of what it was after it was destroyed, down to the last brick. And so these are all important pieces that you begin to put together. And so then I began to, you know, uh, interview people around the city about what what their what what was their memories of the best of all possible worlds. Where what in Munster was the the best place that that or the best thing to, that happened to them, or or some kind of history involved in in the best of all possible worlds for them. And of course, all of the answers are basically revolve around the war. So then I began to, to plan an itinerary to go around and visit all of these exact locations that these people had dis- described. And then, so how do you do that? You, you organize a, a travel, you organize a tour. And how do you do that? You do that through a travel agency. So then, you know, mm-hmm. I set up, you know, I, I took all the elements of, of the travel agencies and, and made my own travel agency, which was in the museum. People had to come to the museum, and then I had actors portray Candide, and they would give them the tour. And people, I made a book that you know, then you went out and you saw the tour. So it's very much integrated into what Munster was and what Munster is now. You know, it's not that much different than the cafe or the hotel or any other works where you know you have to bring people into some experience. The outdoor sign um, with the eye at the heart of it and the best of all possible worlds written around it stems from that project and it's had a life of its own ever since. I think I first saw it at Margot Levin's gallery. I think it was installed outside there um, in West Hollywood in Los Angeles many moons ago. Did you intend for that to become such a marker, something that would live on its own? for years and years in many places thereafter? No, not at the time. But, you know, when the show came down, obviously those signs were produced there for the show. I don't remember exactly how many of them there were. There were. I'd have to get the book and see how many, you know, locations there were. But let's say there was a dozen, something like that. And uh, the tour went in concentric circles around the beginning of where the museum is, and then you went out. In a, in, a, in a concentric way. And so the signs were based on another practice. Size and everything was based on another project that was a site-specific work in Arnhem. Uh, not in Arnhem, but in uh, Utrecht. Uh, I did a, 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 a street with street signs in Utrecht that are still there to this day. And so, they, you know, they approximate the Heineken beer sign that you see everywhere in Germany. Uh, they're the same size. And then the image came from 
logos from old pulp fiction books. And so, but then the science, after the show came down, then what do they do with all the signs? And so they gave me a half a dozen of them. They kept some for the museum and then they gave me some. And so then I had them over here and, you know, the idea works anywhere. It does. <laughs> so, there you go. Finally, um, the, the last-ish piece in the Hammer installation um, is Big Trouble, which is a 2010 work that, you know, in some ways might be said to bring your career full circle uh, back to illustration with humor and installation, an, an eyebrow arched at institutions, specifically the way wealth is is built and washed into respectability. First, is that an actual comic or did you make the whole thing up? Oh, no. That's it's a, an actual Donald Duck. That's a, that's a Karl Barks story. You know, because the, the real comic is on the wall. Yes, you but can, I was wondering how real it was. Oh, you know, it's, oh, it is. it's right. totally real. You it's know, totally it's real. A, it's, a, it's a comic, uh, Uncle, Uncle Scrooge story that I've had since the late 60s because the idea of the art world being competitive and buying bigger things and more expensive works and museums and, you know, the whole, the, the whole intent of the competition there is ageless. I've had it and have used it in other ways since the late 60s. I mean, it even has these references to American history in it that's both, that, that I'm sure were intended originally, but that read as, I, I, I typed one out, it would pay our debt to that brave old pioneer who carved this flowering town site from the thorny wilderness. I mean, this, I mean, there, there is a telling of, and, and a partially truthful telling of, of American history going back to the 18th and early 19th century there. And then the way your work brings it forward uh, with, with what happens to accumulated wealth and how it's washed. It's also a piece that pairs and has fun with two specific American mythologies. One, landscape, which we've talked about before, but the other, just comics. I mean, comics offer a certain series of stories which have become part of our national culture, particularly, I guess, through the Disney line. How and, and why uh, are or were comics important to you? How did they come to be important? Well, I suppose they were, they were, you know, been important since I was old enough to read and trade comics and get comics with all your friends. I mean, I, of course, like I said, I, I liked the idea of being a, a cartoonist, and that probably comes from reading comics and being a comic book reader early drawings as a kid were copying images from comic books or oh, from really? that magazine or oh, whatever, wow. you know. So, you know, the, the idea of comics as art, it goes all the way back to probably the same as most artists who think about comics and art from their childhood. A lot of artists came to L.A. and started out working as illustrators in the animation industry. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, any kind of humor in art, you know, probably could be traced back to, you know, kids reading comic books. And also then you, you have the whole history of EC Comics and when they were banned by the Washington bureaucrats. So then you, you know, became even more interested in them. And so then you had the <laughs> horror comics and you had the, you know, mystery comics and all of that, which came later. And, it's all the first stuff that interested you as a kid, as a, as a reader and a drawer and a kid who wanted to be an artist. And stayed with you, in, you know, for and, decades. And it keeps coming back. 
So, and in film, I mean, Black Panther at the Oscars, for example, I'm guessing that your archive includes hundreds or thousands of comic books. It has boxes and boxes of comic books. So when your archive goes wherever it goes, the Getty or NYU or whatever. Don't get some great ones. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Alan Rupersberg, thanks so much. You're welcome. The Nasher Sculpture Center, presenting Sterling Ruby Sculpture through April 21st. Experience nearly 30 sculptures that include monumental works from poured urethane to ceramic collages weighing hundreds of pounds to soft sculptures incorporating inexpensive fabrics dyed in Ruby's studio. This range of media straddles the line between high and low, fine art and craft, luxury goods, and common necessities. Learn more about how to visit Sterling Ruby Sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Berkeley Art Museum Curator Emerita Lucinda Barnes. Her new exhibition is Hans Hoffman, The Nature of Abstraction, a broad survey of Hoffman's painting from 1930 through the end of his life in 1966. The exhibition is at the Berkeley Art Museum through July 21st, when it travels to the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Hoffman was a German-born painter and teacher who came to the United States in 1930, when he was 50 years old, to teach and to continue his career. The exhibition's excellent catalog was published by University of California Press. Amazon offers it for $48. Lucinda Barnes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to, to be here with you. This exhibition is opening at the Berkeley Art Museum. So let's start with how Berkeley has come to have such an outstanding Hoffman collection and really relationship with, with Hoffman and his work. In 1930, when he was 50 years old, about 50 years old, Hoffman travels from Munich, where he had run an art school for about 15 years, to Berkeley. Uh, why and how does he come to do that? I'm glad you asked. He had, as you said, he he had a quite um, successful, popular and famous school in Munich, which he began in 1915 after working as a young artist himself in Paris for a decade before that. But in Munich, his school immediately attracted a lot of international students. And uh, this is, of course, uh, after the start of World War One. There were, I think, that some young students were interested in a kind of new teaching that came from the ideas of what was happening in Paris and Munich and elsewhere in the first years of the 20th century. Hoffman attracted a number of international students, and a number of those were American students who were in Europe, two of whom, one by the name of Worth Ryder, uh, Glenn Wessels, um, I think even a couple of others from Berkeley, were in, in about 1930, were involved in, in developing and expanding the art department at Berkeley, and things were getting a little difficult for avant-garde artists and artists who were teaching new principles in Germany at that time. And his former students, Worth Ryder and some others who were at Berkeley, invited him to come and teach at Berkeley and essentially got him, gave him the opportunity to leave Germany. 
He went back once, I think twice, and then was both advised and decided to stay in the United States. But that's how the teaching started in Berkeley. And from Berkeley, Hoffman went to New York, where he initially taught at the Art Students League and then quickly opened a new academy of his own. It's essentially as if he reopened the academy he had in Munich. But in this case, he opened in New York City and about a year after that in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And then what happens in 1970? In 1970, when we opened our new Berkeley Art Museum, University Art Museum at the time, just to backtrack a little bit, in 1963, Hoffman and the University of California came to an agreement where they formalized a gift that Hoffman made to the university of 47 paintings and a quite significant cash contribution to help build a new museum building in which his work would be displayed. And this is a result uh, this is in honor of this opportunity that, that Berkeley afforded him in 1930. Yeah, it's a really great story in lots of ways. And in the climate of the present politics, it's useful to point out that here is someone who is an immigrant who came to America as an immigrant, not not in the World War II wave of immigration, but but before that, and who was welcomed and who made a major contribution to the arts and humanities in the United States. And he has, uh, has said, he said many times over that this invitation to teach in the United States, initially he came as a teacher and de redeveloped his career as a painter in America, but the, uh, he said time and time again that had he not had this invitation, he would lost his chance as a painter you know, as a mature painter. So this is, this is, you know, it is extraordinary the way in which he recognized, he continued to, to acknowledge and recognize this opportunity that Berkeley afforded him. Let's dip into the painting. It's, it's a show of paintings. It's not, it's not a history show. It's a show of art. Hoffman is in the early part of the show, which uh, there's one painting from the 1920s, but for all intents and purposes, the show starts in about 1934, I think. In the early part of the show, in kind of the, the middle part of, early middle part of Hoffman's mature career, he is um, nearly wholly tethered to the tabletop, and that he makes extensive usage of the European still life tradition. Why was he so attracted to the tabletop, and how did he use it? Well, I think that his initial sources, some of the, the strongest influences in his early uh, development as a painter, and that was in Paris from 1904 to 1914, he's looking at Matisse, Picasso, and also Cezanne. And I, and I think that the early paintings, uh, those that you refer to from 1934 in particular, the still lifes. These are the artist's studio constructions, uh, what happens in the artist's studio. And I think when you see a number of these, it's easy to think about Matisse and Matisse uh, painting again and again the activity and the creativity and the energy and the charge of what happens within the artist's studio. And in a certain way, it's almost like a self-portrait but with the elements, with 
the elements within the studio and how the artist manipulates those and move the, moves those around. But I think you're right that there's an interesting relationship between the tabletop and the easel. I think that Hoffman would set up constructions, kind of still life constructions, in his studio. He'd start with a tabletop and often with a tabletop and put various elements on them, much the same way that Cezanne did with his wonderful tabletops of fruit and ceramic and things of, of this sort, shifting elements around so you would have a different spatial dynamic from one representation, if you will, to to another representation. But the representation wasn't wasn't the important element here. It, it was it was the color dynamic, the spatial dynamic, the energy that he was able to to create from from one composition to another. Interestingly though, and I think that we see a number of studies that uh, works that look as though they started on the tabletop and evolved into a kind of easel painting. Some of the earliest paintings for me of uh, for Hoffman do have that tabletop feeling, but as he as his work in the 30s began to develop more, and I think that his style and his voice developed more, I think you see him moving toward what feels like an easel painting, which is that kind of traditional European presentation of a work of art. I think one of the key things that happens in the 40s is that he steps away from that that uh, kind of spatial framing of, of an easel in a certain way and lets the lets the paint and the composition kind of explode within upon the surface of uh, his painting surface. There's a great early painting called Untitled Interior Composition. It's from 1935 and it's it's kind of Hoff, I think it's kind of Hoffman's take on the Matisse Picasso bust bowl and palette moment where in 1916 Matisse paints a still life now at the barns that features a bust and uh, a plate uh, and such. And then Picasso in 32 as part of his re-engagement with Matisse riffs on, on that 1916 Matisse painting with bust bowl and palette. And in comes Hoffman a few years later with the painting loaded with references to, to those two paintings. And it's, it's a really neat moment where, where Hoffman kind of sides with fauvism and playing with paint. Hoffman begins to drift toward abstraction in the late 1930s, just as a Second World War becomes unavoidable. Does he have abstraction as an intended end or as a goal, or does he just find his paintbrushes taking him in a non-representative direction? It's hard to know exactly. I feel, though, uh, because... He he relied so much on the concepts of fractured space, released space in a way that he got from cubism, in addition to the freeing of color and form he got from Picasso and Matisse, I mean from Matisse primarily, but there, I feel that there's a very strong not allegiance, but a very strong draw to the path toward abstraction that Cezanne was pushing. 
in this sense of uh, uh, fluctuating space, flickering light, fluctuating space, and and really the idea of light and space captured in a conceptual way over time. You know, I think that part of, of Hoffman's experimentation with drip really is a technical experimentation, how to how to both layer, create a dimension and depth on the surface, on this two-dimensional surface, without referencing illusionistic space, but how to, I think this is something that comes from Cezanne in part, is how to break that traditional Renaissance perspective, to break that space. And I think that one of the things, one of the key things that the dripping that achieved for Hoffman was to break from that pictorial space, that traditional pictorial space. And immediately after, what's interesting is the works that he creates that do use this technique of splatter and drip and splash, but how quickly he moves on to compositions that have much more fluid, almost aqueous environment with these organic shapes that in a way are moving around within the composition almost more successfully than Drip does. So when I look at those together, I really think he is, he is trying to move into a different space into an abstract space. And and to kind of loop back to your question, if I think about this in this way, I think that his goal really was abstraction. Before we come back to the drip paintings, there are a couple of paintings in the show from, I think, 1942 that are titled uh, Landscape. And they're, they're brushy. They're very much kind of what you describe um, in terms of eliminating illusionistic space. Why is it important to Hoffman that he grounds, and, and they're really pretty pretty damn abstract, why do you think it's important to Hoffman that he titles them and grounds them in landscape? I think in those works, there still is, for him, a reference to landscape, to the horizontal format. And the uh, I think when you're looking at several of those landscapes that in which his his stylistic approach is very very different. Some are cu- more cubist. Some are really quite fauve. They feel to me as as if he painted those out of doors. As uh, so really in situ, and the out of doors for him uh, would have been, you know, in the sand dunes in Provincetown, and the landscape is his starting place. It, and it does seem to be a differentiated practice than when. He is working with that splatter technique or something, some other technique in the early 40s, which feel more like studio explorations. It's a hard thing to uh, to describe, but I think there is I, I, I think there is a differentiation in the way in which he approached those. I tend to find his landscapes of the 30s and 40s to be, in a way, the most free, the freest and most experimental, the most, in a way, uncontained works. As I say, the most experimental. I feel like he's pushing every button that he can. There are two of those fauve-like landscapes from, we think they're 
roughly 1942, 1940, 42. I think they, the two of them in the show, which are shown together, were quite possibly painted on the same day. Even though they're not dated, that's another thing about, there are a number of landscapes that are works on paper that are dated by date, the exact date that he did them. So it's it's really as if he's out of doors and churning out, you know, doing another one, another one, another one. It's almost a diaristic approach to his investigation. Whereas it's, it's, it's not unique, but it's uh, more unusual that the easel paintings, the more easel formatted paintings are dated like that. You mentioned Hoffman's drip paintings earlier, and there are a number of them in the show. For a number of decades, there has been a certain debate around Hoffman and Pollock and when and who and who and when first built compositions, at least, out of drip paint. I mean, I think Pollock is dripping some paint onto canvases that are mostly brushed earlier in the 1940s. Uh, but when it comes to, to compositions or to surfaces, if you will, that are primarily dripped, there there is a conversation to be had. And there's a pretty extraordinary footnote, both in your essay uh, and referred to elsewhere in the catalog, um, in which you point out, uh, and effectively uh, and entertainingly to those of us who love to read footnotes, how so many dates of paintings here are, in your words, in need of further research. One of the great, one of the great phrases in, in historical writing. So to the best of your ability to suss out how you think things happened, given the time you've spent with the work and in the archives, what, what happened in that dripped moment? Does, does it matter who was first? It matters to a certain degree, certainly. Um, and will we ever know? To me, the exact who dripped first does not matter, uh, in part because I think it was more a simultaneous happening and cross-influence than it was that someone actually did this in their studio alone and other people saw it and, and followed suit. Ellen Landau in her essay does talk quite a bit more about this kind of shared influence that she thinks, and I agree with, was the strong suit in this, the shared influence between Pollock Hoffman and Herbert Matter, all three of them being close friends, um, both on social levels and on professional levels. But I think she tracks quite carefully a show of really amazing photographs that Herbert Matter showed in New York prior to certain works by, by Hoffman and by Pollock. These incredible photographs that use this kind of tracery, I don't know how he did this, um, it's almost as if they're, they're rayographs or something of the sort, but these layers of different densities of light that create a kind of dripping effect on the on the surface. I think another artist who was important in this, and they, they weren't alone in this, was Wolfgang Pollen. And if I'm getting this right, he, I believe he had a show with Julian Levy in 1940, maybe it was 42, forgive me, I don't have the reference right in front of me. Pollen had been a student of Hoffman's in Europe. And he is showing in New York, the two of them reconnected, 
And at the time, Wolfgang Pollen was using candle drippings and smoke effects on the surface of the canvas. So, so I think there are a number of artists who are using different, different technical means to create a sense of an interior volume. Later on, we see this, there's a work from 1947, which, at least in my mind, to um, some of the linear sculptures by Gabo, and Gabo was showing those works at that particular time. So these aren't isolated, uh, and you could almost you could almost look at those in a certain way as if as if we're looking through dimension and through lines, as if they're drips or strokes or linear gestures. So I think I think this. If one were really looking deeply into this territory, there are a number of artists and a number of ideas that I think play here. The paintings for which Hoffman is best known, at least in the United States, are works he begins to paint when he's in his 70s, paintings he makes uh, starting in the 1950s. And they feature squares and rectangles of, of bright single colors, on murkier backgrounds. They're paintings that seem to have relationships to everything from hard edge painting to Albers to probably other things I'm not thinking of. What was his goal in these these paintings? Is he is he pursuing an idealized, idealistic abstraction? Is he revisiting the tabletop in some way? What is what is he doing in these paintings? I think that the place the place where he arrived in his work in the late 50s and where he launched from that point is is also marked by the fact that from essentially 1958 on he no longer divided his time between running of schools teaching and his own painting he had at that point achieved uh, quite a bit of success in his own career had already had uh, a retrospective exhibition at the Whitney, uh, soon would be represented in Documenta and the Venice Biennale and going on from there. So, so he's, this is really quite uh, pinnacle for him. And, uh, and I really see a mark of the point at which he goes into the studio full time. And he just throws himself into, not that he hasn't been painting vigorously and, and prolifically before that, but he throws himself into that with as one entity, as one complete pursuit. I think another thing that has happened is that by the mid-50s, there's a painting from 1956, I believe, titled The Garden, and that one to me represents this, the, the, the surface is very, very vibrant, almost pointillist surface with much bigger strokes of incessant activity of color and, and, and brush stroke. And it's as if he has merged all of these elements, all of these styles, all of these explorations into one surface. And I keep thinking about the way in which he talked about from the very beginning in his teachings and when he was referring to his own work, he talks about needing to create 
an independent new pictorial space on on the surface of the canvas or whatever you're working on and that it's vital and it's alive and it's dimensional it's flat it's dimensional and it's constantly moving and I think when we get to that point where the where the squares and the rectangles fluctuating with more brushy tones above and below, I think that's when all of those elements come together into one space. I keep thinking about remarks that Frank Stella has made, writings that uh, quotes from Frank Stella about about Hoffman's work and what he sees is Hoffman's ability in those late paintings to create a kind of intradimensional zone between two and three dimensions. It's, it's not entirely flat and it's not entirely sculptural, but all of those elements are, are fluctuating simultaneously and they're independent and interconnected continuously. So I think that's where he he lands in those in those late paintings. That's interesting because I think the titles also maybe point to a, to a certain synthesis. I mean, some of the titles from from these years are uh, "Scintillating Space," "Sparks," "Morning Clearing," "Morning Mist," "Mecca." So you get a little bit of idealism and 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 I don't know spiritualism almost orange mood. Oh, I, I think there's a great deal of spiritualism. I mean, his. I don't mean in, in a religious sense, but a loftiness in his titles. The titles of the very late 50s um, are very nature-bound, if you will. Just as you said, you could, I, I kind of dreamed of, of doing an installation or a gallery titled The Four Seasons because he refers to every season just about in, in a number of the paintings. And then they do, in the early 60s, there are... The titles predominantly are Latin, refer to music, to very, very lofty ideals. One of one of the last works in the exhibition, which I think is just extraordinary, is Latin Ora Pro Nobis, Pray for Us. Um, some of the very late titles from 63 on, 60, in 63 his wife died, his wife of decades, he was very affected by JFK's assassination. He's in his early 80s. You can you can feel you can sense a mortality in those works, and some of them are quite somber in look and in in reference. One of the great paintings in the show is titled Magnum Opus. You get the idea of where he's where you know where he's looking in that. There's another one I never pronounce this correctly in Latin, so I'll say it in English. It's The Way to the Stars. And I just think that kind of sums it up. It's, you know, this is where he's going in the work. This is his, his intention. I love it. Lucinda Barnes, thanks so much. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.